As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, this morning we will look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. We come now to that that final message regarding Isaiah's Christmas children. As we take a second look at the glory child that we began to look at last Sunday from Isaiah chapter 9, we continue to look at the glory child as he is described to us in Isaiah chapter 11. Now, Everything that we have done in the serv- in the service so far, in the different scripture readings and the songs have all led us up to this. So try to keep in mind the things that we have read and sung as we come to God's word here in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, And his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, without your words, we do not have the light that we need as we continue a sojourn through a creation that is languishing in darkness. And so, Father, may your word indeed, not just theologically, but may it actually be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path that we 
actually utilize. As we sojourn through this world, looking for that new world that will come when Jesus arrives in his second advent. Bless this to us, we pray, for we need it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At the beginning of Advent, we, we took a Sunday to, to look at the, the connection between Advent and fasting as we have been uh, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount and as Jesus was addressing what fasting is for the church. We, we were reminded that fasting is, is a, a, a practice that we engage in as a church that cultivates longing and cultivates preparing for the Father's reward. That we, as the church, are in a position of waiting. God has made promises. And those promises have have become yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And yet, the fullness of everything that is yes and amen has not yet been revealed. And so we are waiting. And waiting can be a very difficult time. It can be a very dangerous time. It can be a very tempting time. The people of God throughout history have not waited well. And one of the the primary ways that that has expressed itself is by wherever wherever they found themselves, they, they would tend to try to turn that into what God promised was still yet to come. And so often they got tempted by the things that were right there in front of them rather than wanting to wait for the greater realities that were still yet to come. You and I do this. This is not just the people from the past. This is not just that former generation that, you know, just couldn't get things right. This is the condition of my heart. And it's the condition of yours. We don't like to wait. We want things now. And the reality is, beloved, as what we have been looking at here from the book of Isaiah, is that often this time where we are to be cultivating a longing, this time where where we are waiting in such a way as to prepare for this greater thing to come, it takes place in the midst of darkness and distress where often the people of God feel small. They feel powerless. They feel insignificant. And they are tempted, well, if, if we're the people of God and if God is the true God, why, why is it that things aren't 
all glory? Why, why is it that there is still darkness? Why, why is it that we who are trusting in God are, are still experiencing distress and experiencing weakness and frailty? And what Isaiah has been setting before us is, is that God loves to put His power and His splendor on display through using the small, the seemingly insignificant, that which feels weak in order to constrain everything to the new heavens and the new earth. Prophetically, in the book of Isaiah, the, 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 the figure that God uses to, to show this is the figure of the child. He uses the figure of the child as his prophetic sign and seal that though there is darkness... And though there is distress, he is the one who is high and holy, who inhabits eternity. And yet he dwells with the humble and the lowly in order to draw them into his eternity. And he doesn't do it the way you and I think he should. At least not in the first go-around. He doesn't come as the, as the enthroned king in the display of his glory and in the strength of his army riding on a white horse. That's coming. But that's not how he did it at first. Instead, he came born to poor parents, born in a stable, where he came into this world as a helpless baby. Is there any greater figure of weakness? Is there any better picture for us of something that is small, and frail, and and seemingly has no power within itself, who has to be held, has to be swaddled, has to be nursed, has to be protected? Is Is that the figure you and I would use in order to express eternal glory and power and splendor and and purposes that cannot fail? Is that the figure, is that the image of confidence that you and I want to see? Well, that's the figure that he uses. The figure of the child. Historically, as we have said, the the little nation of Judah that was once part of, of, of 12 tribes has been reduced to two tribes. It's gotten smaller. And because of, of uh, uh, the sin of a, of a wicked king, God is going to make them even smaller by judging them. 
he's going to use this coalition of Israel and Syria and the Philistines and some other smaller little nation groups there in the Middle East. But then he's going to use Assyria, which is the big boy on the block. And because of the sin and wickedness of the king as it is expressing itself through the sinfulness and wickedness of the people. The wickedness that is highlighted specifically in Isaiah chapter 1 in the way in which the rich oppress the poor. The strong oppress the weak. The haves are taking from the have-nots. Those with political power using it for their own good, not for the good of those whom they lead. I could keep going, but you get the picture. And within that situation, which gives the people of God every reason to be scared and to be fearful and to try to come up with some plan in order to not have to experience what is about to come. God comes to his people and says, look, things are bad and they're going to get worse. But I'm going to give you these signs and seals of, of these different children in order that you will know that despite how dark and distressful things are, I am your hope. And if you try to do anything other than just simply trust me, the result is going to be that it's pointless, it will be inadequate, and it will actually destabilize you even further. Meaning, you try to come up with something on your own to deal with your feelings of weakness, you are only going to feel weaker. But, your only option isn't to try to figure out something within yourself. Your option that I'm setting before you is that as you become more and more aware of your smallness, and your weakness, that you will become more and more aware of my strength, my power, my essence as one who inhabits eternity and who likes to use my eternal strength and power for the good of those who are aware of their smallness and of their weakness. And so the calling that we have as God's people is to look to what God shows us, not just what God says to us, but the way that God confirms what he says by what he shows. And what he shows to us is a series of children. The first child, Sha'er Jeshuv, that we looked at, had that promise to God's people 
that there was a future deliverance that would come. Sha'er Jashuv, a name that literally means a remnant will return. And the people of God are called through Sha'er Jashuv. We are called to a courageous faith in a future deliverance. We are called to live with the courage of faith now in light of the reality of that future deliverance that as bad as things are going to get, They will not be ultimate because a remnant will return. Through the second child, Emmanuel, we had the call to to a comforted faith. The comfort of faith that even in the midst of distress, God is with us to protect us and redeem us through it. The second child's name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Not God with us to keep us out of the distress. God with us who he himself will experience the distress in order to protect us and bring us through it. The third child, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, whose name means swift is the plunder. A reminder that even though God is going to use sinful, wicked people to to judge his people, we are called to a confident faith that God will be with us in the distress and protect us through it. Emmanuel God with us, the, 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 the figure of the child that, that shows us that God will be with us to bring us safely through what is coming, that child has a child that is to point to him. And that is Meher Shalal Hashbaz, where, where the message of God and the promise that, that he will be ultimately victorious, despite how things will feel and seem, that victory, as summarized in the child's name, is to be written on a big billboard for everyone to see, where God's promise is inscripturated. And then the inscripturated promise is made flesh when the child is born. And the message, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, becomes flesh in the child named Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now think about that for a second. A call to a courageous faith, a comforted faith, and a confident faith in the midst of distress and darkness and and all that is about to come, a call to this type of faith because God is going to provide a future deliverance as the God who will be with us in the distress, who will experience his own judgment in order that a remnant will return, that life will appear out of death. And so sure is this, that it has been written and the word has become flesh. Jesus is all over 
everything that is being described here. Jesus is the one who was God made flesh. Jesus, as the God made flesh, dwelt among us. And the one who dwelt among us went to the cross and endured the very judgment that he was bringing against sin by judging sin, by taking other sin onto himself on the cross and dying as a substitutionary sacrifice. And though he died, going as deeply into the distress and the darkness that, that sin and God's wrath can create did not remain dead, but was raised from the dead. And out of that dark cave, as the rock was rolled away on the light of that new morning, that dawn that we now call Easter Sunday, a remnant of humanity judged and condemned broke forth from that cave as Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, risen to a new body, became the firstborn from the dead. A new humanity emerged from that darkness. A God-man that that had died, but now was raised to new life and would ascend back to his eternal glory. You see what God is doing through the figure of the child as, as Isaiah is unfolding this for us. He is pointing them to things within their time period in order to reveal something greater that is still yet to come. And this glory child, as we looked at last week from Isaiah 9, we, 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 in the glory child, we, we have the call to a cheerful faith, a celebratory faith, because of this inconceivable and incredible gift that God gives. The glory child will come and will shed light in the midst of darkness. And, and the, the, uh, the specific object here was not, as you remember, it was not Judah. It is Israel. The very nation that is creating the distress. They are the ones who will see a great light. As the gift of the glory child is not just for those who are, who are in the church, but it is for those who are outside of the church as well. And because God is relentless in fulfilling his promises, God through a supernatural gift redeems us from darkness, redeems us from oppression to the joy and abundance of light and liberation. Well, hold up, Pastor. The whole nature of Advent is that Jesus has come. 
The glory child promised in Isaiah 9. You say he was born. That child married that was born to Joseph and Mary all those years ago. That glory child has been born. And yet, as Roger just prayed, I look around the world and there is still darkness. There is still distress. There are still wars being raged. There are still slaves being oppressed. The rich are still taking advantage of the poor. The strong like to compile power for themselves in order that they can benefit from that power rather than taking care of those whom they are supposed to lead. We, can, we still continue to see a world and I still continue to experience in my own life the distress of conflict, the distress of take, being taken advantage of, the distress of my guilt and shame when I take advantage of someone else. I don't just see these things out there. I don't just experience them. I see them and experience them right here. In the depths of my own heart. I don't always experience light and liberation. Is this what God was promising? Is this the extent of what I am to be looking for? Is, is, this, is this what's supposed to provide me a courageous faith? A comforted faith? A confident faith? A cheerful and celebratory faith? Is, is this it? Well, the answer is no. And in the second presentation of the glory child here in Isaiah 11, we see that these realities that are going to be true in the glory child will will not just be true and experienced within an ongoing darkness and distress, but will be experienced within a darkness and distress that will one day become a day of newness where the old is going to give way to the new. For the second time, Isaiah extends to the remnant the hope of the Messiah. And what we have presented to us here in 11 verses 1 through 10 is another presentation of the king with a focus on the nature of his rule and the result of that rule, which is a a paradise. The king, the nature of his word, his rule in the paradisal world where he reigns. 
Now, it certainly, as we look here, it does have implications for those who were living at the time of Isaiah. It has implications for those who would be living a couple generations later as they would be looking for the fulfillment of, of things within their own day. But very specifically, there are things that are described here in chapter 11 that are pointing to, to a future deliverance, pointing to a future time, pointing to a reality that is still yet to come. Notice in the king's endowment, Right? Who, who is this king? Well, he is both a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. He is described in verse 10 as the root of Jesse. He is both a shoot that will come from Jesse but he is also Jesse's root. Now, it took me a while to think about this, and not just because I'm dense. How can you be both a shoot, right? Now, think about it. What's the imagery here? There is a, there is a stump. There once was this great big tree, but in God's judgment, he has cut it down. Now from Psalm 80 that we read earlier in the service, we know that, that the covenant people were, were often described as a vine that had been taken out of Egypt and planted there in the promised land of Canaan. They were planted there and for years they grew and they thrived. And they bore fruit. But back in I, the beginning of Isaiah, especially going back into Isaiah 5, what has happened is that that original vine has become corrupted. And now it's giving forth wild grapes. Instead of those good grapes that are needed for wine, it's giving forth wild grapes that are sour and, and they're falling apart and the vine is, is falling apart. And so God is described here in, in the judgment of God's people because of sin. He cuts the vine down to the stump. But God in his grace is not done with the vine. Because out of the stump there is a new a new shoot. Now Tommy can tell you all about shoots and vines. New growth that comes out of something that looks to be dead. And that's the first image here. God is not done. He's going to continue to deal with this vine. But if things have gotten so bad, he's just going to start over basically. And what we are told is out of this stump, there's going to be a new shoot of growth, Right? And so the shoot is coming from the stump. So there is a, a sense in which there is an origin in the stump that the shoot is coming from. So there is a connection. But this shoot that is coming out of the stump is also described as being the root that would be under the stump. 
The root being that part that's underground that you don't see. And so this shoot, whatever it is, that's coming out of of Jesse is also, in a sense, coming out of itself. It is the origin of its own existence. It is the origin of its own life. Now, just how supernatural is that? That you have something that is its own origin that is going to reproduce itself in something that will become decayed and so he's going to start back over with himself. This is a supernatural king. His endowment is one of eternity. He is self-existent. And as the one who is self-existent, he is one that can utilize something in order to bring himself into a new form of existence. We could do the whole sermon just right here. And I'm really having to exercise some self-control. Believe it or not, I do do that up here. There is new growth that's going to come. And the new growth that is going to come within God's people is going to be a growth that comes from the origin of life itself. So that God who is the origin of life, who, who created and, and shared that life and brought forth a humanity, a humanity which fell in sin, that within that God is going to reveal himself in a new way, but a way that is connected to what he has already done. To put it in New Testament terms, God is going to add to himself flesh. And not just where he is the origin of life that has expressed itself in in humanity that, that lives within a world that he has created, but he is going to be so connected to that humanity that when it fails, he will be the new humanity himself from which the hope of new life will come. That is what it means for this king to be both a shoot and the root. There is no one in history other than Jesus Christ which matches this description. But notice that not only is he both the the shoot and the root or the root And the shoot, he is one who, in the way that he carries out his rule, it it is such a righteous rule that it is as God is ruling himself. He is one that he doesn't have to look at what his eyes see. He doesn't have to listen to what his ears hear because he knows the heart of everyone that he rules. He's not dependent on what he observes. 
He rules on the basis of what he supernaturally knows. He knows not only the actual actions of those, he knows the intentions. He knows the motivations. He knows the secret thoughts. He knows all those little things that you and I think we keep in the darkness. The light that shines in the darkness shines even in the darkness of what we try to keep hidden. Often from our very selves, let alone those around us. But this king is one who, who is so filled with the spirit as the spirit of the Lord is resting upon him that, that the very spirit of God's wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and delight fills this king. And his rule is so characterized by these things that he is going to take everything that is wrong and he's going to make it right. Now think about that. How often do we hear things like those who are poor can't get a fair trial? Those who aren't part of some inner secret circle are not going to receive a a fair trial. Those who can afford the best lawyers are the ones who often get off. It is a reality that's not only true today, it is a reality that has been true since the fall. And what is promised here is that the rule of this king, because he is supernatural and because his rule manifests a supernatural character that not only will he see what is true, not only will he know what is true, he's going to make things true. He's going to take action. And all of those different expressions of darkness and distress are going to receive justice. Yes, right now, those who are waiting on God and entrusting themselves to his promises continue to experience life in a cursed world. But a day is coming when that will not be true. A day is coming where he will manifest the rule of his father, not just spiritually in the, in the hearts of those who are trying to trust him, but in the very real concrete existence of the world and everyone in it. The knowledge of God, we are told, will one day encapsulate all things. But what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for God's kingdom? Does it mean that that this hope of justice, this hope of revealed real world righteousness is something that will only be seen at some point in the future? Or is that to be revealed even right now? 
in the life of those who are connected to the shoot. To put it another way, what does it mean for you and me, not just with regards to the benefits of being in Christ, but through the calling of living out your Christness in this world? Who, who, who is the shoot? Who is the root? Who is the true vine? Jesus has told us. I am the vine, and you are my branches. Beloved, what it means for us to be in Christ by faith is is that we have been reborn in Christ. We have been made new, and we are already those who are partaking of his life and his love and his mission that we that the sustenance that you and I have is just like that sustenance that runs from the root through the vine and into the branches that come out of it that's the connection that you and I have where the very life of God is is within us and as Jesus says if that is true if that is true your life will reveal His. And the calling of Jesus Christ is on the basis of being a branch that is tapped into me. Your calling is to express me in your life, in your loves, in your desires, in your actions, intentions, motivations, in the way that you relate to God and the way you relate to yourself and the way you relate to your neighbor are to reveal this rule of Jesus Christ that is described here in Isaiah chapter 11 so that his righteousness and his justice are seen in this world as they are seen in you. Now let that sit on you. Because you and I have the tendency of wanting to moan and complain about the way we don't see the rule of Christ in the world. And the way we don't see it in our neighbor. We don't always bemoan it and the lack of it in ourselves. We tend to forget about that. But we like to complain. We like to bemoan. The reality is is that we're not called to sit around and judge other people and bemoan the lack of the revelation of God in their lives. What we are called to do is cultivate a courage and a comfort. We are to, to, to cultivate a, a confidence and a celebration of the life of God within us so that we will strive to reveal that in this ongoing world of darkness. 
You see, we get so caught up in what do I get out of things, and I'm not getting out of my faith what I think I should be getting out of my faith right now because things are still hard and still dark and distressful. And what we lose sight of, beloved, is that though it is the temptation of God's people while we are waiting to try to turn the darkness into light, what we are called to do is so grasp hold of the light that as Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. The old is on its way out. And the new is coming. What are you going to do in 2024? For some reason, the date on the calendar is changing, and so many of us are going to be tempted to think, okay, well, it's a new year, so maybe it can be a new me. First of all, please don't do that. The new you already exists as one who is united to Christ. And what you and I are to cultivate within ourselves is that conscious recognition of the newness every day. Not because a date on the calendar has changed, but because Jesus rose from the dead and has created a new humanity in himself that you and I say we are a part of if we profess faith in Jesus Christ. The new you already exists. The question is, will you cultivate the things that you need to cultivate in order to live out your newness in Christ? In order to reveal to yourself and to reveal to this church and to reveal to this world that a new day has already dawned because of the resurrection of Jesus within history. And with that resurrection, a new king. And with the new king, a new rule. And one day, the new king and the new rule will be expressed in a new world. And it is a new world that harkens back to Eden, and yet it is better than Eden. In Eden, the serpent was a threat. But in this new world, the child will keep its hand over the serpent's home and keep it in check. Once again, the figure of the child being utilized to you and me to express the purposes of God. That he will fulfill what he has promised. Because what he has promised is is not just an okay existence within a fallen world. And what he has promised is not just an existence of power and, and prestige in a fallen world. What he has promised, beloved, is life in a new world that can never be threatened and that can never be lost again. Beloved, paradise was lost. I believe someone wrote a poem about it. What we are looking to, as it is established in Jesus Christ, 
is a paradise that cannot be lost. And so, beloved, that is your hope. And that is your glory. So maybe 2024 doesn't have to be a year of whining and complaining. Right? Not about the world. Not about the younger people, right? That's always a that's always a fun one. Oh, this generation, they're just not as good as the previous. We're all in the same boat since Adam. But we are also all in the same boat in Jesus Christ. Let the new year, as you focus in on the new you, Let it be a year of giving yourself to participating with God and letting the old pass away and cultivating the new and live this life in 2024 as someone who is so courageous in your faith, someone who is so comforted in the midst of the distress, Someone who is so confident in Christ. Someone who celebrates Christ so much that you will give yourself to the completion of your faith and the culmination of your glory as all things will be made new but are already new in you. My encouragement is go out into 2024 and be the righteousness that you don't see. Fight for the justice that you don't see. Through whatever power and means you have, use that for the one who is still oppressed. Because the core of the gospel that we take to the world, that we show the world, is that God cares about the poor. And he cares about the oppressed. And he will bring justice. Because as the one who is high and holy, lifted up and who inhabits eternity, has come to dwell with the poor and the lonely, in order to draw them into his glory by putting his power and and his splendor on display through what often looks weak and frail and yet is being used to constrain everything to the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that runs through our hearts and minds throughout the week. Fears and stress, pride, arrogance, trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in you. Plans that we try to put together that will make life easier for us. 
And yet, Lord, what we have to admit is for all of these things that we have attempted to do, we feel just as weak and destabilized and confused and distressed. And so, Lord, help us to use 2024 as an opportunity to try something new. And rather than look for that dopamine hit that comes through our complaining, Father, may our dopamine hit come from the celebration of your glory and from our participation as those who are, who are so grafted into Christ that through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself lives within us and is longing to live through us. And so, Father, help us when we, we have that opportunity just moments from now. Some, some struggling with the desire to complain over the length of the sermon. And me being one of them, Father. Father, help us to starve that desire. And instead to feast upon who you are as the self-existent one who has introduced yourself into your own creation, adding to yourself flesh in order to die and be raised again and to ascend to glory where the resting place of Jesus Christ is in the glory that he has earned which has been gifted to us as our eternal inheritance, even now as we are waiting. Father, may we become so enamored with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can't help but choose to refuse to complain and instead bear witness to our King. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.